Hi listeners, Jason here. We are excited to finally announce registrations for the biggest psych health and safety community event ever. The inaugural The Psych Health and Safety Conference will be held at the Sofitel Wentworth, Sydney, June 19 to 20, 2024, and offer concurrent virtual attendance. It'll feature live podcast recordings with OG researchers, including Christina Maslak and Michael Leider of Burnout fame, Psych Health and Safety USA podcast host I, David Daniels, Australian super experts, including the likes of David Burrows, a special 10-year anniversary integrated approaches to workplace mental health panel with authors Tony LaMontagna, Angela Martin and Kat Page, hand-picked case studies from organisations doing it well, and a very special interview with plaintiff Zaggy Kozarov by Catherine Dunlop on that High Court case which we previously covered on the podcast. This event will sell out. Get in quick to secure tickets at early bird prices for the two-day conference, pre-conference masterclasses, and the VIP dinner. The first 200 in-person registrations also get a copy of her latest book, The Burnout Challenge, signed by Christina Maslach herself. Find out more and register at www.psychhealthandsafetyconference.com. Now, on to this episode. People don't come into the workplace as blank slates. Everyone has a series of experiences that have shaped their personality, influenced how they see themselves and how they interact with others. We'll talk with a professional educator and author about some experiences chronicled in a new memoir up next on this episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. As workplace mental health has become a global priority, there's a greater focus on addressing psychosocial hazards. Each episode, we look at psychological safety from an occupational health and safety perspective. Let's talk psych health and safety. Welcome to this week's Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. I'm your host, Dr. I. David Daniels, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Each week, We seek to increase awareness of the importance of psychological health and safety by learning from the lived experiences, research, and expertise of our guests, as well as advocating strategies to reduce harm and minimize vulnerability to psychosocial hazards in the American workplace. So psychological health and safety is kind of an active endeavor. Uh, There are a lot of parts of this effort that require us to consider the present, But there are also some aspects that require us to consider the past. Uh, So in in a workplace where we expect people to bring their whole selves and have psychological safety present, that's certainly commendable. It's something I'm all very, very supportive of. But uh, sometimes what we see and what actually has occurred or what's going on behind the scenes and inside people, we may not know that. We don't necessarily know everyone's story. We don't know what's come up in their life. We People come from different backgrounds and experiences. And many of these experiences actually inform how people do their work today. So when we say bring your whole self, that means that sometimes people are going to bring situations that are challenging, that might have even been traumatic. And we, you know, it's, it's sometimes good to have conversations about that because they affect how we act today. And so uh, I have the opportunity to catch up in this episode with a former colleague. There was, so there was a time when I thought I wanted to be uh, full-time in higher education. Uh, I certainly found that I'm really more interested in safety than I am in education, though I'm interested in education. Uh, I, I, it, it was really interesting to have the opportunity to be in higher ed and, and to come across some people you just kind of connect with and kind of, you know, just seem to have, uh, just seem to be vibing with. And now, years later, I'm starting to understand a part of the reason why. Not not just because she's a good person, but because there's a life experience that creates a connection to what I was doing at the time. And we'll get into more into that here in just a second. So uh, I love to start these conversations off by uh, an an introduction of my guest by my guest and not by me, because the introduction will be really long. So in this case... My question is, who is Dr. Virginia Hesslinger? Well, Dr. Virginia Hesslinger is someone who has been a Christian since childhood. Um, I've written stories since childhood. I'm a teacher. I'm a wife. I'm a grandmother. 
I'm active in my community and uh, I'm a traveler. Okay. Okay. All right. And, and um, we're going to get into some of those because all of those views of who you are and belief in, in, in what you're about inform lots of things about you. Uh, let me ask one more kind of standard question before we get into the unique ones. So what does psychological health and safety, when you hear that, what does that mean to you? Well, I think a lot of people feel healthier and more open to um, possibilities that are good for them when they feel safe. And so in the workplace, in my workplaces have been around the world in a variety of uh, classrooms. So whether it's um, a lean-to in Mexico or cement blocks in Inner Mongolia or a juvenile detention center in the United States, I see it as a priority to help the students feel safe because then there's a lot of positive things that can happen. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's... That, that's interesting. All of the different places you've had the opportunity to be able to teach is a story in and of itself. And we may get into some of that, but oh, my goodness. Uh, wow. The, wow. So interestingly, you recently also became an author. So you authored a book, uh, Grace Interlaced, and a, a memoir. In the book, you talk about a significant incident when you were very young. Can you share a little bit about the incident? Yes. When I was 12 years old, my parents, who were active in the community, went out to a Red Cross meeting. They were looking for ways to raise money for the Red Cross with the town. And I was a babysitter. I'd been babysitting since I was 10 for my brothers, my younger brothers. And we also had the pastor's son staying with us. He was two. And while I was downstairs, a fire broke out upstairs and it was connected to a nightlight problem. And um, when I heard the baby crying and I went upstairs, all the power went out. The house went dark because the fire had gone into the wall by the nightlight. And the outcome was that I was only able to get two children out. So the fire itself was traumatic, but then coping with the guilt or blame and everything that went along with that um, took a long time to work through that. Wow. Um as you know, as you well know, and some of my listeners know as well, I spent a lot of years uh, in the fire rescue service. And again, that's that's how we met. As a, yeah. you know, I'm, I was serving as a assistant professor of you know fire science essentially, and uh, I can't say that I have had many opportunities to talk to people on the other end of these kinds of situations. Uh, I, you know the. The fire truck shows up and we hop off and we, you know, squirt a bunch of water around and, you know, in some cases break some things and, you know, do what we can to take care of the incident. But it's not often that you get a chance to talk to someone who was actually there before it started, endured what happened, and then also has to experience the, uh, the, the, the emotions involved for the rest of your life of, of something like that. And, and so how... How how would you describe how this incident has influenced you emotionally? Well, I think other than a few nightmares that I had as a child in the month immediately afterwards, I pretty much locked it all away. And so the title, Grace Interlaced, has to do with, over time, how I see, I don't, just say coincidence, I believe in God incidences, how over time I was having portions of my emotions and my life unlocked, that this grace that came through other people, through experiences, um, really healed me. 
over time. And, uh, but I would say probably for decades, I just totally, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to think about it. People now that are reading the book said, we never knew this happened to you. How can we have known you for so many years and we didn't know this? Right. So, yeah, it was just put away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think the way it affected me was I always looked at students and thought, I can see this child in front of me or I can see this young adult in front of me, but I don't know what happened in their past. And um, I also remember uh, my brother's third grade teacher came to his funeral and she was so upset. She was a young teacher and she said, have I wasted hours of his life? I never thought about having one of my students who was younger than me die. And I'm thinking back and did I make his days enjoyable? Did he like learning? And that made a huge impression on me. I didn't even realize till later on when I was deciding on a career, her reaction stood out so much because nobody should take for granted anybody's life. And we are using up hours of students' lives and that's precious. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You, you, um, that, that's, that's just very interesting. Cause I, again, I was one of those people had absolutely no idea that one would, and, and I, I find that, uh, people process traumatic events in many, many different ways. Of course, the way your brain does it, it either, you either fight, flight, or freeze. And in some cases, the freezing lasts for decades. It yes, just adds to your, to, it gets locked away someplace because it's sometimes too painful to have the conversation, to to deal with it, to, to whatever. It's just not, it, it just doesn't work. So it gets locked away someplace. And uh, that's how you're able to function. And that's how you're able to, you know, to be, uh, to be in the world. Uh, but, but it, it obviously affected the, some of the decisions that you made for the rest of your life. I mean, whether you knew it consciously or not, it appears that it actually did. And, uh, and in the, in the book, you talk a little bit about the interactions between the local fire rescue department members. Uh, and again, you're 12 years old at the time, which, which again, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's a whole thing in and of itself being 12, you know, I, uh, it's been a bunch of years, but I do remember parts of it anyway. <laughs> so, what yeah what what type of impressions did those interactions with the local fire rescue folks what what did that leave for you well i really had a unique view of it because i was separated from the two little boys that i rescued they were by the curb i had to go to somebody else's house to make the phone call now what you have to remember is i'm old enough that there was no 911 so mm. when i called from my house it turned out afterwards, the uh, the fire investigator and the fire chief explained to my family what happened. But I had to go next door. So I left the little boys by a tree out front and went next door to use their phone to call the fire department again or to call the operator who would call the fire department. So when I came out, a crowd had gathered and I was separated from my yard and the boys. And there was a, a couple of people standing by the boys but when the fire department arrived, you know, I had always respected firefighters as brave heroes that could go in and rescue people and save buildings. And I didn't realize until actually starting teaching at Anna Maria how much um, firefighters did apart from fires. You know, our world has changed, at least in our country. So they do a lot more education. They are at... Uh, accident scenes. They are in emergency situations, lockdowns, and just, they do a wide variety. And I never knew that as a child. I just saw them as action heroes that were there. And, um, and then afterwards, a policeman took me to friend's house. My parents and the boys went to the hospital on ambulance, but since I was separated and they found me later, um, I went to the friend's house and the fire chief and investigator arrived before my parents got back from the hospital. So I had a few moments alone with them, talking with them. 
and they were very calming and they didn't seem accusatory or so I felt like I was safe. And then mm. um, I would say that they really showed an intuition, an instantaneous response to protect. Because one of the toughest things that people will read in the book is when my parents did show up, my mother was crying, but my father just said, if you could get two out, why couldn't you get three out? And the firefighters mm. that were there, they just stood because they'd been sitting at the table. They stood and made a wall between him and me. It was just instantaneous. So again, I felt protected and safe. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't anything where they could talk to one another and say, well, let's stand up and you know make this guy settle down. Um, but it was, yeah, I felt very safe with them. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, this, uh, if if there are, and I, I do have a fair number of fire rescue folks who, you know, listen and listen regularly. And if you're listening at this episode, uh, you want to have people getting into the fire rescue service read this book. You do. You do. Be because, as I said, it is important to understand that the steps that you take and this is not only in fire rescue service. There are a lot of other helping kinds of professions in law enforcement, in, you know, healthcare, in, you know, all kinds of situations where you're there to care for the other person. It's important that you see not only what you intended, but how is it received by the person? How is it received? Because sometimes, you know, we do things that aren't necessarily helpful. But not, and it's, it's not in, that it's intentional. But in this case, and I'm willing to bet, I don't know this, but I'm willing to bet back in the day that these that the fire chief and the investigator didn't have training in child psychology or anything. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Probably not. This is Probably this is just not. their instinct. Yeah, this is just yeah. right. Instinct, yeah. humanity kind of coming through. Absolutely. But in years of working now with um people that are in the fire science department, it does seem like a majority of them have something innate to protect as well as to serve. So I'm glad to see that that intuition exists. And I do remember at the time there was a policeman that drove me to the friend's house um, and we were quiet in the car. And I remember as a kid thinking, I bet he doesn't know what to say to me. <laughs> you know, it's just... <laughs> How would you know? Take this child to this person's house. Yeah. Right. 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 And 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 interestingly, you know, I think that's part of the value of us having this conversation, because it gives people the opportunity to think about, wow, what would I do or say? Uh, is there something that I should consider? Is there something I should think about you know, when I'm interacting with folks? And and again, we're going to bring this, you know, a little bit into you know more into contemporary. So. When people come into the workplace, like you did, whatever your first job was, this experience went with you. It did. It was, even though it was in that kind of walked away secret place, it was still there with you informing what you're doing. Nobody goes into the workplace as a blank slate. Nobody. Everybody's got these things that have happened to them. So how do you believe your experience impacted how you showed up? I think I showed up realizing any emergency could arise at any time. And I think I showed up whether um, I was working with, uh, when I was in high school, before I went to college, I was a nurse's aide at a large institution that had a wing for young people with crippling diseases, a wing for the elderly, and then a, like a mental institution wing. And so you would work for 10 days in one and then have four days off and 10 days in the other one. have four. So in any of the situations, I always tried to remember, I don't know what went on in this person's background. I don't know what they came from. I don't know what they faced before they sat here with me. And it does make a difference in your attitude towards teaching or caring for people. Hmm. Do, 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 you, do you think it helped you be even more empathetic than you would have been otherwise? 
I do think so. I can remember, um, you know, when you train as a teacher for K through 12, it's very different than at the college level. At the college level, a lot of people can go right from a profession to teaching in that area, or they can go from earning their doctorate by age 30 and go right into a profession and not study teaching. So in that case, there's been nobody to remind them that when you see a student who's unprepared, it could just be that that kid deserves a medal for showing up mm. because you don't know what went on until they got to your classroom. You don't know what they came from or what they're coping with. Right, right. That That's really such an important point when we talk about just the workplace in general, because it, there, you know, there are lots of rules and regulations and policies and ways that people go about doing business that are really cookie cutter. So, you know, me and my business partner, we set something up and we set it up to serve our interests because that's what we had is, you know, me and him or me and her or whoever, we, we did things that were going to work for us. We're going to make us money. They were going to build our business. But we sometimes, again, to your point, don't consider the people who are coming to work with us, even our customers and clients and, and others, their life experience is a little different. There's, and there could be anything going on with them today, years ago, whatever. And instead of judging the way that they are showing up today as right or wrong or good or bad, sometimes we need to consider how they got there. And again, you know, to your point, just to be able to show up for some people is is success. It's a triumph. Yeah. Just to be able to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Whether yeah. it's as a student or in the workplace, because uh, people have so many layers of multiple responsibilities, especially if you're in the sandwich generation where you're taking care of elderly parents and you're taking care of kids and you have your full-time job and maybe you have a part-time job. And it's a lot. It's a lot. Absolutely a lot. So, so, so how do you think ex ex experience, let's, you know, dig into that just a little bit more. So how do you think experience, especially trauma, affects how people show up at school and at work and at other places? Well, I think a lot has to do with the kind of support that they had coming through it and working through it. Um, I had a very supportive extended family. So, and we were involved in a church, so we had, you know, a supportive church family, even though my family fell apart. Um, so I think, you know, that helps people work through it. Now, my family was pretty much anti-counseling. At one point, my mother suggested uh, talking to the pastor, and my father said, if you talk to the pastor, I'll never go to church again. So... Yeah, it was pretty anti-counseling. <laughs> but um, in marrying a man who was a pastor, I got some free counseling. <laughs> and I also got, I also got a, a person that understood a lot about talking through things. So, um, and, and God's grace turned up there in some very unique ways. One of the things that my husband told me when we lived in Massachusetts, um, this is shortly before I met you, was that he was very honored. He'd been asked to be a chaplain for a group in town. And so I said, have you decided? He said, no, I have to think about it, talk to people a little bit more. So one day when I came home from teaching, he told me he'd made the decision. And uh, I said, well, is it the senior center? Or are you going to be the chaplain for the senior center? And he said, no, I'm going to be the chaplain for the Holden Fire Department. And I was just floored. Total. Wow. Now I'm going to have to think about this a lot more. Go and to fire socials. You, oh, my gosh. Yes. yes. Learn yes. about the yes. firefighters' and, families and all. You know, it yes. was. Yeah. Yes. But that was good for me. That was, again, a help. Had you had, had you shared your story with him at that time? Uh, he knew the basics, but I, nobody, all the things that were locked away, a lot of the negative stuff, I just, just shut it down. Yeah. Mm, 
So I think it was really good that um, that I could learn so much about, you know, the firefighters' trainings and seminars and some of the tough things that they face after. I mean, the situations, people don't stop and think about um, what firefighters and EMTs and police have to face these days, whether it's at an accident scene or, you know, it's just, it's amazing. So that was very good for me to extend it beyond just thinking about fighting fires. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So, so, so you, your chosen uh, profession has been as a teacher, as an educator, kind of helping others uh, progress through their education, despite their differences and, you know, experiences and backgrounds and that type of thing. So how, what role do you think that's played? You know, your role as an educator and helping people through that. How, how do you think those, those two things have come together? Well, I think if, if you interviewed um, students that I've had over, now it's close to 46 years of teaching, K through 12, college, graduate school, I think probably most of them would say that they felt safe and that they felt encouraged. And for helping anybody reach um, goals and have hope for accomplishing, you know, whatever it is that, that is their goal, I think that I've really tried to, just like the title says, Grace Interlaced, I've tried to interlace that with the studies that we've had to look at. Yeah. Hi listeners, Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety Podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, so I, <laughs> I I'm a, a, a recent well, I got into education much later in life. As a matter of fact, my formal education after high school took about 25 years <laughs> because it was a piece here, piece there, piece here, piece there. As a matter of fact, when we worked together, I think I was just kind of starting on the doctoral uh, uh, journey. And uh, that took close to 10 years to finish. But one of the things that uh, that I experienced as I finished was I met, so I you know, was in a couple of schools and I transferred to one. And I, I met someone who shared with me that the goal was to get me through the program and not to do the academic hazing that goes on in a lot of particularly doctoral programs. And uh, I, I bring that up for there's there's a point to that, that education for some people is actually pretty traumatic. And it's traumatic in some cases because of how people teach. And the things that the teacher says, I still remember being told in the second grade that I would be in speech therapy for the remainder of my life. And I think that has to do something with the fact, has to do in part with the fact that I was being kind of labeled because of the family that I came from, not necessarily because of anything that was inherent, because I talk okay. <laughs> Yes, you do. You definitely yeah, I, do. I, I, I do okay. But I still remember that all these years later. And again, to your point about the role that an educator plays in being supportive of the journey that the learner is trying to take and not simply you're right, you're wrong, you got an A, you got a B, you got your fail. That whole kind of 
kind of bureaucratic part, it is important to have people like yourself who have care for the learner, not just trying to teach. It's care for the person. And some of that probably does come from your own experience. Yeah, I I agree. And you have, again, you have to think about those hours of a person's life. Some students love to have professors or teachers that they can get off the track so they don't have to study the subject. So I don't use a lot of personal stories in teaching. I don't want to get off the track. But um, once in a while, something will come up. And I remember one of my first years at the college, I had a student that he loved to interrupt and he'd come to class wearing something really obscene on a t-shirt. And so I would say, let's step out in the hall. And I'd say, would you please turn your t-shirt inside out just to come back in the class? And, and he would, he'd kind of smile while he did it. Well, one, one class, one of the students raised their hand. They said, you don't ever yell at us. Why don't you yell at us? You know, every professor yells once in a while. And it just blurted out. I, I hadn't thought about it. And I said, you know, I had a younger brother that died. And the last thing that I said to him, I yelled at him, stop being a brat. And I said, I think every time I'm tempted to yell at somebody, I think what I want that to be my last action or my last words. So class wasn't well attended that day. I had maybe half the amount of students. But I can't tell you, it got all over the campus. So apparently, you know, the the students that were there, it made enough of an impact that they shared that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, and, and there is this, you know, rather traditional way of teaching. I mean, it goes back to our traditional ways of how we do lots of things. There's this, you know, some person in authority, you know, uh, pedagogical kind of approach. I'm the instructor and I know everything and you know nothing. And therefore, I should be able to say whatever I want and treat you in whatever way that I want. And you'll come back for more. And you actually pay big money for it. I know. That's amazing. (laughs) And unfortunately, that has spilled over into a lot of our other enterprises, well, particularly at work. So you'll have, I mean, you know. Uh, education and healthcare, both as industries, have some of the highest incidents of workplace violence. And I do believe that some of that way that people are treated has something to do with it. Yes. You know? The tension builds uh, up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. Absolutely. But I think we, so, do all, so- we take life for granted in a lot of ways. So, you know, even putting children to bed at night, you expect to see them in the morning. And having a student come to class, you expect to see them the next day. Having somebody show up at work, you expect to see them at the next shift. And we take that all for granted. And every hour and every life is precious. Right, right. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to remember that story myself because I, you know, there are a lot of folks. The yelling by the uh, by the professor at the students normalizes the behavior such that when they get into the workplace and people yell at them, they kind of expect it, kind of expect it. But what you did is reset their expectations by not doing it. And now they realize that, you know, I can actually go to class and I can learn something and I don't have to be yelled at. (laughs) And I think it feels better. At least it it felt better to me to not be yelled at. I I don't know about other people, but I'd rather not be yelled at. Yeah. To treat, to treat, the people in your workplace, the people in the classes, the people in seminars, to treat them all with respect is so important because we don't know what people have been through or what they're going through right now. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so the, the book is launched and thanks very much for the opportunity to, you know, to, to be able to hear when you were writing the book and, you know, be able to, Hey, I got an advanced copy, so we won't tell anybody. But uh, I just really, I, I, to be honest, I don't read a lot of books from cover to cover first time I pick them up. I just don't. Some, I never read them from cover to cover. I'll be honest. Uh, But I really just couldn't put it down. I just, I I found myself kind of like, 
oh, oh boy, and, and there's more, and there's more. So what, what, what caused you to decide to write the book? Well, I think it was an object that turns up at the end of the book, and I'm not going to say what it is, because when that object was delivered to me, it was um, the year that COVID came out, the summer that COVID came out, and it was something that my mother had had for lots of years, and I never expected to see it again. And so we were all home with COVID. I mean, we didn't have COVID, but because COVID had everything sure, locked sure. down, I thought, you know, I should look at these things and I should see if I can write about this. And so if I started it in 2020, I finished it in 2023. Obviously, I'm doing other things besides writing. But uh, yeah, that was it was being faced with something that was definitely connected to the to the day, I know, let's see, the fire was on a Monday. So it was something connected to Friday after the fire. And, um, and that started the whole thing off. And then once I got into it, I realized this is really good for me. And I started to see the way things had happened over the decades that broke through that wall that I had created on my emotions. Um, my wall and choosing not to be involved with certain things. So yeah, it was uh it was a very valuable way to see how your resilience can come from your faith and from experiences. Yeah. It sounds like it was therapeutic for you. Yeah, I think it was. And um you know, for a lot of people writing books, they get a developmental editor. And my developmental editor, I've known for 50 years. So he was very good because he said, you know, I feel like you're shying off from telling me something. And he pushed. And so, yeah, I think it was very complete because he could tell when I was saying I'm not going to go there. And he would push me to go there. And um and that's also why at the end of the book, I have uh, discussion questions. I know I've heard from a few people that um, their that a Bible study group can use it because they're a set of questions on forgiveness. There's a lot that comes out of trauma where people need to forgive self or forgive others. But there's practical questions about fire safety in the home, about babysitting, um, parenting. So I tried at the end of the book to whether it would be a, a reader's, you know, a reading group or a study group of any kind to have a variety of topical questions that they could look at to hopefully help them reflect personally or with a group. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I heard something a couple of years ago that I continue to repeat and, and, you know, I, I, I don't know the name of the person. Otherwise, I give them credit because it was brilliant. But uh, it's we can generally only give to others out of our abundance. We can't give something to other people that we don't possess ourselves. And you mentioned, you know, and, and it seems to me to be a bit of a theme in the book about the importance of forgiveness. But it starts with forgiving ourselves for whatever, for whatever. And, and, and often the things that we are blaming ourselves for, feeling bad about ourselves, uh, weren't things that we could have really done anything about anyway, that we, we, we didn't really have control over them. They more had control over us, particularly when we're children. And it's, it just seems to be, to be part of this journey that you've been on is to, is to do the inner work. And that's why I talked about, you know, what it took to unlock that kind of secret place. It took something to go and, I got to unlock that. And once you, it's like unpacking that closet where you stored things for years and, you know, come to find out there's some things in there that you need to throw away. And there's also some things in there that you really need to keep in access and, you know, and, and really keep close, you know? So, so uh, if, if you, if you're comfortable doing so, can you tell me a little bit about that, that the role that forgiveness has had in this project of writing the book? Well, I think early on, just to keep going, um, I had to 
I don't know if I forgave myself or if I just locked that part away because you feel like the most basic part about babysitting, just like now with the shootings that happen at school, is to protect the people in your care. So, you know, that was that was the first thing that stood out to me for blame. But there's other things that, like you mentioned, a kid sees different things that they feel guilty about than an adult would feel guilty about. And without anybody to counsel you, you don't get how the other person is. So I think part of my father's and my clash over the years was due to we both blamed ourselves and we weren't very forgiving of the other person. So that was a major, that, that went on for decades. And, um, and I think the, it's natural, you know, when I talk to anybody where they've had a major disaster, whether it's a car accident that was just, you know, did some harm or whether somebody died, you always think, well, if I hadn't done that, or if I had done that, I think that's very natural that people, you know, we're raised more with looking for who to blame than we are with how can we love other people and how can we show more compassion to people. So we need to do that for ourselves too. And I think, again, there's where faith came in with this grace being interlaced. God's grace was to show me over time, again, to remind me that love was what was important and compassion was what was important. And then that helps with forgiveness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Love and compassion, again, starting with you. I mean, with, yeah, because I, I'm, I'm really convinced and I, and I, I believe this about virtually everything, that it is very difficult to help other people uh, be safe if I'm not safe, to help inform or educate other people if I'm not educated, to love other people if I don't love myself. If I look in the mirror and I don't see something that I love, it's hard to turn around and go, well, skip over me and love everybody else. And what we tend to see is the reflection of how I treat myself. I treat other people that way. And people... And, and a lot of these folks end up in positions of authority. They end up as teachers. They end up as supervisors and CEOs and whatnot. And behind that title, there is undiagnosed and unaddressed trauma. And, and again, to your point, I had a guest on recently talking about the importance of addressing trauma that people have, you know, early in their lives. I, I'm, I, <laughs> I, I probably should get a kickback from ther- from the therapeutic folks out there, the mental health people, <laughs> because I believe that everybody, whether you've had a significant crisis recently or not, therapy should be like going to the dentist. It's something that we do regularly that we, and, and some people that therapy may come through their faith traditions, and I'm not to, you know, but talking, that talk therapy and getting some of that out is just so important because otherwise it's like a bag we drag around and it's really heavy. It is. That's and true. it's got all kinds of things in it that after a while, some of them start to even start to like, where is that feeling coming from? And why am I? Because it's in that bag that we never opened, you know, and then we start to, you know, to treat other people in that way. And we don't realize it. We don't, you know, or people are attempting to do what should be positive intent things. And we take them in a negative way because of the bag and because of what's in it. And I, yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm a believer, you know, based on my read that this book's going to help some folks. I hope so. That was, that was a goal. Yeah. 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 And I think the psychological health and safety and the workplace, you know, one of the things that you find with uh, the firefighting community is they do support one another. And they, you know, I've, I've seen in the past 10 years, more people that are willing to speak out even on something as simple as staying in shape that will encourage somebody to, you know what we're doing. I don't want you to have a heart attack while we're running up a flight of stairs. You know, how about if we exercise together? Or how about if our fire station can get some exercise, you know, equipment or, and I just, I think that's very healthy. I think for years people ignored it. They wouldn't point out something negative and yet when you do it, let, let's do this together. Let's come alongside and do this. That's good for psychological and physical health. It is. 
It is in fact, is in fact. And and just a, another, you know, couple of curiosities. Have um, have you seen similar kinds of discussions in education? You know, because I, I <laughs> education is a tough place these days. Higher ed, K through twelve, it is a really really tough place. Again, another guest recently talked about their experience in higher education, well, in actually K through 12, but education in general, just the challenges we're having with what books should be taught. And <laughs> and then, the you know, is somebody going to bring a weapon onto the campus? All those kinds of things going through, you know, have, have you seen those similar kinds of conversations going on in education? I think they have been going on a lot more in this century. I was teaching high school when Columbine happened, and the English teacher across the hall had two nephews in that high school. So he went rushing out as soon as the news came on to make some calls. And um, it's, I think if people don't discuss fears and trauma, then it will be worse, the pressure on them. COVID was tough because the personal connection and teaching, I mean, you do a good job in personalizing your conversation on your podcast. Some people are much more cut and dried. And in a classroom, it's really, to me, crucial that there be connections that are positive. And uh, whether it's something that's on display in the classroom, an activity that helps people to relax. Uh, and it, it's an extra challenge. A lot of people that could leave teaching left teaching because of the changes that repressed everything during COVID. So, uh, and I know working with student teachers, it's, it's tough. There's many more challenges now than there were, um, even in discipline. You know, I had an older teacher say to me, well, I don't know what it is with these young teachers. They can't, they have 30 students in a class and they can't control them. I had 45 students. I could control them. And I said, well, you know, back in the 1950s, if you had a big class and somebody acted up and you called their house, you probably get a lot of support from the parents, didn't you? Oh, yes, of course. I said, well, sometimes there's no phone at the house. Sometimes there's no parent at the house. It's a lot different now. So, you know, it really, teaching has changed tremendously. And it is a pressured job with fears, like you mentioned, shootings and bombings and that just were not a part of the past. And for firefighting, you know, again, thinking of the students that I have, they they're equipped to deal with a lot of kinds of emergencies, but they need to have somebody to talk to too. And that's part of what a fire chaplain does is that person is there to visit them. And, um, and everybody does need somebody to, uh, to talk to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. So, so, uh, so um, what's, what's up next for, uh, for Dr. Hesslinger? What's, what's next in her? Is she, will she write more books? Does she continue to teach? I mean, what, what, what happens next for you? Well, I am continuing to teach, but I started another memoir and this is going to be about my um, time of training teachers of English in remote areas of China. I did that for eight years. So there's some very unusual experiences. Um, it's not like teaching in downtown Beijing. It's uh, way out in the middle of the Gobi. So it's it's different. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on now. And uh, I have a few other research projects, but life is not dull. I'm active in our community here. I, uh, I I'm in a book group. I lead a book group. Yeah. So there's always something going on. Right. Right. So, so if, if people wanted to find out a little bit more uh, and, and, and not only find out a little bit more about what you're doing, but if they want to get a copy of the book, <laughs> how would they, how would they contact you? Um, well, I think for getting the book, all the major booksellers um, in this country and in others, because the uh, distributor just, does it around the world. Um, so in this country, probably the two that are used the most are Barnes and Noble and Amazon. 
and it's in paperback and it's also an ebook. And uh, so they can just order those. If they want to get in touch with me, they can do vhesslinger at annamaria.edu. Um, so that's fine. And I'm glad to talk to people, um, whether it's Zoom calls. I had a group contact me and say, would you do a Zoom call with our book club? We're reading your book. And so I'm, I'm glad to do that. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Virginia, so much for, uh, for, uh, for catching up. Uh, Thank you. Just a, just a wonderful opportunity to share. And as I said, uh, I, I really enjoyed your book. It'll be, look, it'll be interesting to see what the next one looks like, because I, I, I've never been to China, but I do recall some of your stories about teaching in all these places around the world. It's just fascinating. Just fascinating you've been able to been able to do that. And uh, high time that the world's got an opportunity to share in some of your brilliance. So thanks. Well, thank thanks. you very much. I enjoy your personalized podcasts. I think you get to the heart of subjects with uh, good questions and good humor. So well, thank th you. Thanks. Thank, thank you. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, uh, this is, you know, I'll be candid. This is a bit therapeutic for me because um, I, I am convinced that I have had chronic exposure to psychosocial hazards, particularly over my professional career. There's just no question. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Over and over and over and over again. And these weren't conversations that we had back then. And I'm hopeful that they stimulate people to think about. So how is that person feeling? Not just that. I mean, what's going on inside them? What's what's motivating them to be what they are? Not judge it, but just be curious about it. And is there a way that we can create an environment so they can be themselves and bring all their stuff with them? I mean, bring the luggage. When people come to visit you at the house, they bring their luggage and that's okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good, that is a good metaphor. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So again, so, so thanks. If you are watching this episode on the Flourish DX YouTube page, please do like, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. If you're watching or listening to the podcast for the first time, welcome. I hope something that you've heard will motivate you to come back and listen or watch again. Previous episodes of the podcast can be found at psychhealthandsafetyusa.com. And please do become a part of the Psych Health and Safety USA movement by connecting to us on LinkedIn. So with that, we'll close and look forward to our next episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Tune in each Friday for new episodes of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. If you have a story or know of one that needs to be told, reach out to us on LinkedIn or send an email to david at id2-solutions.com or go to the Flourish DX website at flourishdx.com. Dot com. We'll see you next time.